bring ourselves into obedience to you tonight. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's read it together. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to have a relatively short passage. I'll start in verse 12. Jesus went into the temple complex, and he drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves, and he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and all the children shouting in the temple complex, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus told them. Have you never read you have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants? Then he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany, and he spent the night there. Let's try to understand what's going on. Uh, as I said, this is, you're familiar with this passage because it's Jesus getting angry. But I want to tell you that to really understand what's going on, we, it, we have to understand that Jesus is interacting with the temple. And to know that, we, I need to do a little bit of review of what is the temple, Right, we know that the temple was the Jewish place of worship, but I want you to know that the temple in the Jewish mind was a big, big deal. This, this was the central place of worship for all Jews. It was a big deal. Now, let, let me give you three reasons why I think the temple was huge to Jewish people. One is the temple was God's proof that he loved and dwelt with and related to and talked to and knew men. The temple is why we knew that God isn't just a figment of our imagination. This is a real God who loves real people, and he's interacted with us right here in this real building. We've been in youth going through uh, the whole Old Testament. We're only in Exodus right now, and we just finished looking at the construction of the tabernacle. I told Evan I was going to get him up here and tell us what we saw the last lesson but I'll spare you, Evan. The very last thing we saw is that the temple was constructed and the glory of God filled the Holy of Holies. And there was a cloud over it. And it says in chapter 40, Moses couldn't even go in there because the glory of God was in the temple. And the, the temple or the tabernacle in the temple is, is the kind of full version of the tabernacle. Is this picture of this is God with us. This is where we can go to see God, to be with God, to know God. This is God loves men. There's a second thing the temple shows us. Not only is God with us, but it shows us that God is holy. Way different than you and us. Right? Another thing we saw as we were reading through Exodus is that the temple was only the finest craftsmen worked on the temple. Only the best materials, only gold and fine jewels and the best, uh, we, we kind of joked about goat's hair was the fine fabric of the day, but only, only the best was used to create the temple. And it was, you were supposed to walk in and realize this is for a king of kings here. This is not your normal everyday place. The temple was something wholly other. But it wasn't just the decoration. It wasn't just the layout of the temple uh, visually. It was also that the temple was designed into three sections, right? There were three. The outer section was what was the courtyard. 
There was an intersection called the holy place, and inside the holy place was the holy of holies. It was the holy of holies where God dwelt. That's where the cloud came in. That's where God stayed. And normal people, people like you and me, the farthest we could get in would be to the courtyard area. We would get in and we would know God is on the other side of a door and then a curtain. But we would interact through a mediator. We would interact through priests who would take our sacrifices. We would come to say, God, we are guilty. We need your blessing. And so we bring sacrifices and the priest would take those in to the holy place on our behalf. And they would say, God, as in his sin, will you forgive him by taking that priest in as a mediator for us? And even the priest couldn't go into the holy of holies. Except for one time a year, God would relent and allow the high priest one time a year in to offer sacrifices for the whole nation to say that we have sinned and we need your forgiveness. And all of this was this visual reminder that God is wholly different from us. He's majestic in a way that we're not majestic. He's righteous in a way that we're not righteous. We're sinners. We can't get to God unless someone works on our behalf to bring a blood sacrifice for us. He's holy and we're not. The temple was third, the place where the Jews told the whole world that not only is he holy, but he's merciful. That's where the sacrifices were brought. The purpose of the temple was that the whole world could see through the Jews' temple that you can bring a sacrifice and God will forgive your sins. He will pass over them because of the, the blood of an animal will be sufficient for God to pass over your sins and you can be forgiven. And the temple was to remind us that God is, God is with us. He's holy, but he's also merciful. His mercies are new every morning. It was a big deal because what we knew about God, the, the most, probably the most vivid picture of the Old Testament of what we could know about God came from the temple. This was the central point of Jewish worship. And Jesus goes into this temple and he goes crazy. He comes in, with, John tells us he makes a whip and he drives them out, the animals, and he drives out the money changers. What happened? What happened that would cause Jesus to go into the central place of Jewish worship and be angry and drive them all out? A couple other good things to note here is that we're in the last week of Jesus' life which means that we are in the week leading up to Passover. Jesus will eat his Jesus walked into town on a Sunday, Palm Sunday, which is what today is. He walked in on Sunday. On Thursday, he's going to eat his Passover meals with his disciples. On Friday, he's going to die on a cross. This event is probably a Monday or Tuesday of that week. So the, week, the, the place is full because people have traveled from all over to come into the temple to bring their sacrifices, to be right with God for this once-a-year sacrifice they called the Passover. And since they were coming in from all over, the temple was filled with money changers and animals and beasts. The idea was this. Basically, if I'm going to travel, imagine, for instance, that the temple, we're here in Jacksonville or near Jacksonville, and the temple's in D.C. 
I'm not going to pile up all of my doves and livestock and everything to do my uh, sacrifice. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to bring a wad of cash, and I'm going to show up in D.C., and I'm going to shell out the money I need and buy the animals there and sacrifice the animals. The problem is, in that time, not everybody had the same currency. So rather than going to D.C., it's more like I'm flying over to Europe. And so when I get there, I have to get my money changed because they won't accept it. So they go into the temple, they change their money, they buy their sacrifices, and they hand it in, and Jesus kicks them all out. He kicks out the animals, he kicks out the money changers, he kicks out everybody in the temple, and he says, this has to stop. And let's read why he does it. Jesus tells them why. In verse 13, he says to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. What's going on here? Jesus is quoting the Old Testament in two different places. One place he's quoting is from Isaiah chapter 56. He says, my house should be called a house of prayer. I think it would be easier to understand why Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56 if I read you a little bit more of the context. On the screen, because space is small and I want you to be able to read it from farther away. I only put verses 6 and 7, but I'd like to read a little bit further. Uh, I'm going to start here. Let's see. Okay, I'm going to start reading in verse 8 from my notes here. This is Isaiah chapter 56. I'll start reading in verse 3. Isaiah says, no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. That's awesome news, by the way. Isaiah is saying to the Jews, no foreigner, no one outside of your walls should think that God won't accept him. The eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuch who will keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord minister to him. They love the name of Yahweh and they become his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather them and still others besides those already gathered. Jesus is saying God had a design for his temple. And that design included people from all nations. From everywhere, anybody who was estranged from God could come to this temple, and that was the place where they could meet God. Jesus says, That's, my house is a house of prayer for everyone. The second part of his quote tells us, but that's not what was happening. In the second part of his quote, he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. But again, I think it's helpful to read the context. Let me start again in verse 3. This is Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, correct your ways and deeds, and I will allow you to live in this place. 
Do not trust deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He says, instead, if you really change your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, then I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave you to your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. It says, do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house and call by my name and say, we are delivered so we can continue doing detestable acts? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your view? He says, yes, I too have seen it. Jesus is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7 to tell us what the temple was meant to be is not what the temple is being. You were supposed to welcome all nations, but you are oppressing them. You were supposed to come holy and repentant of your sin, but you're using the temple as an excuse to continue in sin. I'm thinking of Romans 6. Should we sin that grace can abound? Paul says, may it never be. But they thought, I can do whatever I want because once a year I can head to this temple and give my sacrifice and I'm cool. Jesus says, you have used this temple to become a den of robbers in which you are oppressing the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, the weak. So what's going on here? Minimally, we see that the temple is being misused. But when you add in the idea that he's chasing out these money changers and all of, the, all of these beasts during the time of travel when the foreigners are coming in, I think what we see is going on, and this is what most scholars believe as well, is that Jesus is condemning what he considers predatory practices by the priest. I've heard... Uh, I guess sometimes in seminary you have shop talk and people will use weird language, but they call this in seminary fleecing the flock, right? When the shepherd sees a flock, it's a chance for him to line his pockets. And as people walk in and it's detestable and gross and they say, I see people that need God and I might be able to make a quick buck off of this. And Jesus saw that and he was furious. And he grabs a whip and he runs them out of his temple. He says, I will not have you making a barrier that keeps the nations from my house. And he runs them all off. But not only does he run off the money changers, he runs off the sacrifices and everybody. Because God says, Jesus is angry that we would oppress the very people who need him most. This was the crime, probably the straw that broke the camel's back of crimes that began Jesus' final rejection of the Jews. And we're going to see this over and over and over again. The obvious fact, at least in my mind, is that this is not just a Jewish problem. 
Right? This is still going on in our churches all the time. And so as I prayed a little bit about how to apply this, I, I thought I need, to, I need to pause here and just give you a warning that you are living in a world where pastors and preachers of the gospel are routinely looking to take advantage of you. We pulled up a list of bestsellers in the month, month of March, Christian bestselling books in the month, month of March. Half of them are coloring books, by the way. These are adult Christian bestsellers, which... <laughs> the other half, many of the other half were written by pastors who live in multi, multi-million dollar homes. And they have bought these homes preaching a message that has, in short, been called the prosperity gospel. Uh, you will recognize it often with language such as seed faith, in which they say that if you will send us this money, a dollar or $10 or $15 as a seed of faith, then God will multiply it to you 5, 10, 15 times. And so if you send me $15, then God will send you back 45. If you send me 50, God will send you back 150 or maybe 1,500. You know, maybe God will send it 100 times. And, and what they are promising is that if you send them money, God will send you blessings. And what has happened to these ministers is that one, I, I know that it's dangerous to name names, but once I tell you this re, most recent thing that's been in the news, if you've been watching the news, you'll know his name, a very famous pastor who is on this bestseller list has recently basically has, is shopping for a $68 million jet off seed offerings. $68 million because he says, why should the son of the king fly like a pauper? So he's buying a $68 million jet because he's telling people all across America that if you give me money, God will give you blessings. And I'm telling you that based on the bestseller list in Christian bookstores across America, that this is the predominant religion of American Christians today. So you should be very, very careful. You should be very, very careful. This is the type of behavior that Jesus walked in the church, walked into the temple, turned over the tables and said, you will not oppress my people in my name. That made Jesus furious, rightfully so. That should be a huge warning to the three of us. I thought this morning a little bit, and you'll probably both be frustrated at me for sharing this, but <laughs> the, you don't have the stage. <laughs> um, one of the things, one of the things I'm, I'm proud to say is that both of these men here I've seen show clear evidence that that's not what's going on here. Um, when I first got here, you know, I guess about a year in, uh, I'm sitting in the church council meeting and hear that, that these men have taken pay cuts at the time that our economy went down. They took pay cuts against the will of the church council and said, we cannot make more money while the people in our church are making less money. 
And that to me stood out as a sign of we are not fleecing the flock. We are not taking advantage of the flock. And I cannot tell you how thankful I am for that. I wish that I could cite to you an example where I've done something similar. But I'm proud that you guys have. Um, It is a sign that we are under trustworthy, trustworthy men. But I will also tell you that regardless of the past demonstrations of trustworthiness, that it is a constant temptation for all humans to get rich or to benefit off of the gullibility of others. And so we are always needing to protect ourselves. That's why we have a church council, to be honest with you. Um, You should always be vigilant to make sure that you are not giving under false pretenses, not for the furtherance of the gospel, but for the furtherance of the pockets of false preachers, or honestly for the furtherance of your own pocket. That's what makes the prosperity gospel so ridiculous. Is that the claim is not that you can come to the gospel and meet a holy God and sacrificially give and love and thankfulness for what he's given to you, but that if somehow you can give him some money that you will obligate him to give you some money as if he's this cosmic genie. And so really the people who are being taken advantage of are honestly being taken advantage of because they they are suffering from the same condition that the deceivers are suffering from, and that is greed. Not that I want to honor the God who has blessed me, but that I want to get some more blessing by somehow shoveling out a little bit more collateral or whatever it is that we think will force God's hand. This is not a response to the holy God. And that's why Jesus says this has become a den of thieves. A den of people who are more concerned with their pocketbooks than with the glory of the God that they say they're there to serve. Let's keep moving in our passage. I was on a soapbox for a long time on that. The neat thing is that Jesus kicks these men out. And what you see next is that he becomes exactly what the temple was meant to be in the first place. Let me read the whole rest of this passage, starting in verse 14 again. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex, and he healed them. Look at that again. The blind and the lame. These are not the rich and the wealthy. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple complex, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what the children are saying? Yes, Jesus told them. Have you ever read? You have prepared praise from the mouth of children and nursing infants. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany. So the very first thing we see is that while the priests were profiting off the people coming to the temple complex, Jesus was blessing them, healing the blind, healing the lame. While the people of the temple were getting rich, Jesus was actually working to save these people who were coming to him. He was doing what the temple was meant to do in the first place. And the Pharisees were frustrated. Rightfully so. I imagine that if I was a Pharisee, I would have been looking for security to usher Jesus out, 
right? How did Jesus get to stay in the temple at all once he drove people out? Why didn't some big men come and escort him out? And I think the reason is because what he does immediately afterwards is he starts healing people. And he's surrounded by lame men who are no longer lame. They're walking. Blind men who are no longer blind. They're singing. And children saying, this is crazy. Hosanna, this is the son of David. Hosanna, which means save us. This guy is something special. And so how can you go kick out a man who is restoring sight to blind people and healing lame people? Something really special is happening here, and it's kind of tied the Pharisees' hands. Except for they think they find their window of opportunity. They hear the children shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, and the Pharisees say, now that's our shot. Because what the Pharisees realized is that that sounds an awful lot like blasphemy. Blasphemy is when you're attributing that this guy must be God when he's in fact not God at all. They said he must be contributing, this must be blasphemy to call him the son of David. The son of David in the Old Testament is the person that God promised David would have a son. And God said to David, you will have a son and he's going to have an eternal kingdom. He'll sit on an eternal throne and peace will rule for all time under this son. And they're saying, The son of David is here. This eternal king who will never die, who will have a kingdom that will never end. We think he's here. And then they're saying, Hosanna, save us. The man who had just driven out all of the sacrifices from the temple. Remember we talked about what made the temple so great? That was the place where I could go to find mercy. I can offer a sacrifice and get mercy from God. And Jesus has just driven out all of the opportunities for mercy. He's driven out all the opportunities for salvation. All the animals are gone. And these guys say, we're not scared because he can save us. He can do what those animals were supposed to do. And the Pharisees, or the, I'm sorry, the chief priests were saying, they're indignant. This is blasphemy. This is not right. They're angry and they felt they've caught Jesus. And so they accuse him. Do you hear what these children are saying? It sounds like a question, but it's an accusation. Do you realize that this is blasphemy? And so Jesus quotes the Bible and accuses them right back. You have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants. Let me tell you why this is an accusation. Because Jesus is quoting from Psalm chapter 8, or I guess Psalm 8, uh, verses 1 and 2. The whole song, the the first two verses say this, Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout all the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Because of your adversaries, you have established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. David wrote this song. And he says, The Lord is great. The Lord is majestic throughout all the earth. And then how do you prove that? One of the ways he proves it is by showing that the adversaries who came up against the Lord, the Lord was able to use the weakest people in society to prove that those adversaries had nothing to say. 
The weakest people in society, God says, I will use the weak to shame the strong. That's how I will prove my greatness. I will take my adversaries and I will make a stronghold out of the mouths of infants, and nurse, nursing infants and children that will silence these adversaries and they'll have nothing to say to me. Jesus quotes this to the chief priests, basically saying, you are the adversaries. And these blind men who are speaking, the lame men who are walking, and the little children who are shouting, shouting, Hosanna, son of David. These are the weak who are shutting you guys up. How are you going to come against the son of David when you've seen with your own eyes that he can absolutely change lives? And this is still today the greatest defense of the gospel that we have. There's many, many good defenses. And a few weeks ago, Rodney walked us through for basically almost a week of reasons to believe that the Bible is reasonable. And, and, and there's very striking, strong reasons. But at the end of the day, the same thing that shuts up the mouth of the chief priest will shut up the mouth of anybody who is looking. That, that is God absolutely changes lives. How, what are you going to say to a blind man who can see? Or a lame man who can walk. Or a drug addict who's not on drugs anymore. Right? What are you going to say to a jack man who lived his whole life as a drunk and then say, and then I met God and it's changed me forever? Jack man, I think that, and I don't mean this in in a mean way at all, but I think jack man would fit under the category of the weak. Right? The children and the babes of this world who lived his life inebriated for most of his life. And God said, this is how I prove that I can do anything I want to do. You are my adversaries because you don't believe that I can do what I can do. But these weak people who I've come to save, I'm the temple. I'm the son of God. I'm the one who can save. And you, can, you can't even argue about it because I've shown it over and over again. And there's a host of people around him saying, Hosanna to the son of David. I want to emphasize what I think is the larger significance of what's going on before we come back to this last point. Um, It's true that Jesus is angry here. And it's true that they've messed up here. But what's happening right now is a complete change an epoch, a change in time, a change in the way God is interacting with man forever. Because Jesus isn't just showing up to the temple and slapping them on the wrist for saying that he is disappointed with the way they behaved. What Jesus has done in this encounter is shut the temple down. He has closed its doors. Now the temple will continue in Jewish tradition, but for Christians, we realize that today, on, on this day, which was probably a Monday of Passover week, Jesus kicked all the sacrifices out, and on the Friday, he became the sacrifice. And he shut this temple practice down. I want to read to you a passage out of Malachi. It's a fascinating passage. Malachi chapter 1, I'm going to read the verses 6 through 12. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? This is God speaking. And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says Yahweh of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. 
and by presenting, uh, I'm sorry, and you ask, how have we defiled you when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? When you present a blind animal for a sacrifice, is that not wrong? And when you present a lame or a sick animal, is that not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of hosts. And now ask for God's favor. And do you think he'll be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, he, will he show you any favor? Ask the Lord of hosts. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will accept no offering from your hands. For my name will be great among the nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Yahweh of hosts. In this passage in Malachi, God is angry with Israel for much the same reason that Jesus walked in angry in the temple that day. You are offering sacrifices that are defiled. You're giving me your worst, not your best. You're bringing your lambs, but they're not your best. They're sick. They're blind. Worse than that, you're just, you're not acting in a way that even shows that you have any meaning behind it. You don't care. You're not repenting and then walking away from your sin. You're continuing in it. And do you think I'll forgive you for this? And then God says, you know what I wish? I wish somebody would show up at this temple and shut its doors and none of y'all could get in. And what we have just read tonight is about the person who came in and shut the doors. Jesus is the fulfillment to this desire. Kicked them all out. Then, once the temple doors were shut, we read in verse 11, because why? Because he wants the purpose of the temple to be fulfilled. He wants his name to be great among all the nations. No more of this playing half-hearted, I'm kind of a Jew thing. He wants his name to be great. How is he going to do that? Incense and a pure offering presented in his name. Jesus on probably Monday of Passover week, shut the doors. And Jesus on Friday of Passover week becomes the pure offering. He is the fulfillment in every way of the temple. He's the reason that God's name is great among the nations. Before Jesus, Israel was supposed to be a priest to the world, a kingdom of priests, so that you and I would know God through their obedience and right relationship with God. By and large, they failed in their missionary efforts. The world was reached within a generation of the coming of Jesus Christ who fulfilled not only all of Israel's sacrificial purposes, but their mission efforts to make his name great among all the nations because of his work and obedience on the cross. So I'm going to prepare to close now by asking you to respond. And the first thing I want to do is ask you, what's your sacrifice? What have you been bringing to the temple? The, this temple that was shut down was shut down because Israel was bringing defiled sacrifices. 
They were using God to get blessings, not coming to him as the holy one who lived in the holy of holies, completely separate and righteous and above us all. They thought that a cheap gift could get them out of their penalty and they could go on their way. God shut it down. And he says, none of your deeds can justify you here. None of these animals that you can give me will make you right in my sight. But then he sent us the one who could make us right. And so I want to ask you very first and most importantly, have you trusted Christ to be your sacrifice? Have you said, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, Hosanna, the one who saves us, I will trust him without exception and without reserve. I will give my entire life in devotion to him because he is the one who can save me. If you are not absolutely 100% that on your day of judgment, you will have offered Jesus as your sacrifice that will let you escape the wrath of God because of the death of Christ, then don't leave tonight without resolving that. There's nothing more important. The second thing I want to ask us, many of us here in this room, we've, we've resolved that long ago. We've said, I trust Jesus Christ and him alone What I want to ask is, have you fallen into, and have I fallen into, the same pattern the Jews did, who offered their sacrifices and have gone out living in a way that undermined and said, we we don't need these anyway? Have you offered your sacrifice for your sin and have gone on living in your sin without repentance or sadness or grief in any way? Are you content to live like someone who doesn't know Christ, hoping that he'll be your fire insurance in the end of your life. Uh, This is the type of behavior that God said made Jesus angry. And so I ask you to repent of that. Say, I don't want to harbor sin in my life. Confess it and repent and turn from it tonight. Uh, Mackenzie and Carly, if y'all want to come up, I'm going to pray for us and we will move into a time of response in which the altar will be open and you can uh, deal with the Lord as, as he's leading you. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you more for your son who has come and replaced the temple for us. We have benefited in amazing ways that we probably haven't even begun to comprehend. No longer do we have to bring our livestock and doves to a temple and ask a person to intercede on our behalf with a holy God. You sent your own son to be sin for us so that we who were sinners could be righteous. You've become our sacrifice, and because of your son, we can know you and experience you without any other mediator but him alone. I pray tonight that you will move in our hearts, first to, to meet your son and accept his gift, and second to order our lives in a way that reflects our immense gratefulness for your amazing love. I pray this in your name. Amen.